Now, there are a handful of psalms in the book of Psalm that we find that have a direct connection to a very specific historical moment in the life of David. And Psalm 3 is one of those psalms. Psalm 3 is inspired by a a specific historical event that takes place in the life of David that we actually know about, that's been revealed to us in Scripture, and where we find specifically with this psalm in 2 Samuel. So in Psalm 3, what we get is we get this glance into David, into his heart, into his mind, and what he is thinking, and what he is feeling during the circumstances that are taking place at this moment in the life of David. If you look on your Bible, uh, my Bible has a little title before Psalm 3, maybe yours does as well. Mine says, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is the circumstance in which David wrote this psalm somewhere in the process where David has to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom. And if you stop to look at the circumstances and all that is going on in this story between David and Absalom, it's amazing that one, David even took the time to write a psalm about it while he's on, a, on the run, yet a psalm like Psalm 3. Because when you look at the words of Psalm 3, it becomes even more amazing that David could write such words under such a strenuous trial. So what I want to do is, before we go dive into Psalm 3, is I want us to look at the circumstances that surround David at the time that he writes this psalm. Uh, the story of this actually begins in 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you want to turn there just for reference, I'm not going to read a whole lot of it, but I do want you to see it just so that you can see the flow of the story. The story starts in 2 Samuel 13, and here's what happens. In this story, and I'll just preface it right here, this is a mess of a story. This is not a PG-13 story at all, okay? Um, it's more intense than that. What we find here is that Absalom is mad at his brother Amon because Amon had an inappropriate sexual relationship with their sister Tamar. That's messed up right there in and of itself, right? And so what happens? Absalom goes and kills Amon for what he has done. So that's what starts this whole thing off. Word gets back to David about everything that happens. David is upset. David is upset about this whole situation, and he's upset specifically because of the death of Amon. And so word gets back to Absalom, and Absalom flees. He, he runs. He takes off. He's, he's fearful for his life. And so what happens now is there's this tension and there's this isolation that builds between David and Absalom, between father and son, all right? For five years, they don't see each other. They don't speak to each other. And we see how this tension and this isolation begins to affect Absalom because in chapter 15, what we begin to see is Absalom starts to make a plan. And this plan is, is he's going to move against David. 15, chapter 15 goes on to describe the plan that Absalom wants to make, this plan of insurrection against his father, the king. Absalom's goal is to turn the hearts of the people away from David and turn the hearts of the people towards himself. And in verses 13 and 14, we see the result of Absalom's plan. I'm going to read those two verses here. 
where it says, And the message came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtakes us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword." So Absalom is successful in his plan. He has drawn the hearts of the nation towards himself. And as a result, David is fleeing. He is leaving the nation because David fears for his life. And Absalom takes the kingdom from his dad. And then in verse uh, 30, we see the effect of this plan that it has on David. Look in verse 30 with me. It said, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. So here's what we see. David flees. It almost gets the picture that he flees hastily, right? He doesn't even get shoes on his feet. He's leaving barefoot. He's leaving his home. He's leaving his, his authority and his throne and his kingdom, and he's weeping as he goes. He's in mourning. He's got his head covered. Not that he's trying to hide himself, but he's lamenting. He's mourning this scene here as he flees for his life. And all because his own son has turned against him. Absalom has been able to turn the whole nation of Israel against his own father. But that's not the end of David's troubles. That would be bad enough in and of itself. But to add insult to injury while fleeing, look at the confrontation that David has with this man named Shimei in chapter 16. Turn over to chapter 16 and starting in verse 5, read with me here. When King David came to Barurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he, and as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right-hand side and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." Look down verse 13 with me. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite of him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. Man, I mean, just when you couldn't get any lower, right? You're fleeing town. You've been run out by your son. You're fleeing for your life. You're weeping. You're mourning. And then you have this guy, as you're fleeing, cursing at you and throwing rocks at you as you head out of town. I mean, just feel the weight of all those circumstances that are surrounding David at this particular moment. I mean, I don't know about you, but 
I mean, some of the feelings that I would probably be feeling in that moment would be feelings of, yeah, I mean, serious depression and complete discouragement, right? I mean, to feel totally defeated in this moment. I mean, he has to be emotionally drained, right? He probably has feelings of betrayal and embarrassment, feelings of fear and anxiety, maybe even anger and bitterness, and for sure, feelings of hopelessness and despair. I know that I would be feeling those things for sure, because I know those are things that we can feel when we're going through serious trials in our lives, right? Now, we don't know everything that is going on in the heart of David during all of this that we just looked at, but Psalm 3 does give us a picture of what is going on inside the heart of David as he is fleeing Absalom. We don't know at what point he wrote this, but we know in the process of fleeing, Psalm 3 came to be. So let's look more, let's turn back over to Psalm chapter 3, and let's look more at this psalm in detail. I think this psalm takes on, uh, it takes on a whole new light when you look at everything that just happened to David. So what I want us to do, I'm going to start in verses 1 and 2 and look more at what's going on here. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So David's doing a couple of things here in these first two verses. One is he's being really honest with God, right? He's not pretending life is a bowl of cherries. He's not acting like everything's A-OK hunky-dory. I mean, David is being really genuine here. He is accurately expressing to the Lord the difficulty of the trial that is surrounding him in verse 1, right? This army is coming against him. David is showing us it's okay for us to be authentic in our prayers to God. It's okay for us to say, God, here's the problem. Here's what is going on in my life. But not only is there this physical battle looming with David, there's also a spiritual battle that David is fighting as well. That's in verse 2, right, where it says, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. I mean, David's enemies, and probably Shimei was one of those enemies, right, that is telling David that God is not going to save So David is fighting a battle on two fronts. There's this army that's after him that wants him dead, but there's this spiritual accusation that is being thrown at him to make him doubt God's goodness towards him. I mean, that's a lot like our battles that we fight, right? Our battles a lot of times are against some physical thing, right? Whether it be sickness or a conflict in a relationship, or stress at work, or some sort of financial struggle. I mean, just think about the trials that you've gone through. Normally, they're around some physical thing that has taken place. But all those physical trials that we face, there's always a spiritual battle within it that we fight as well, right? Like, does God really care about me? Is God listening to me in this moment? Is He even there? Has He abandoned me? Is he ever going to take action? Maybe God's against me. Maybe he's really punishing me. Doubts about God and his goodness can arise when we face physical trials. And David is showing us, one, that it's okay for us to be honest with God in our struggle. We don't have to act like we have it all together, 
when it comes to our trials, right? That's one thing that we can do with trials is we can think, well, here's a trial. I've got to go take care of it, and I've got to go fix it myself. David is showing us that it's okay to not be okay. That we, it's okay to say, you know what, I can't do this, I can't handle this, but I know the one who can, and I'm going to come to him. I think sometimes some of us can look at trials like the little engine that could. Remember that book, right? He's got to get up the big hill, he's got a big weight to carry, and what does he say? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And I think we can take that approach with trials that just says, okay, I just got to get in, muster up enough strength, and I think I can. But that's not what the gospel says, and that's, what not da- that's not what David is telling us either. Really, what we need to recognize within our trials is that we can't. The proper response is to say, I know I can't, I know I can't, I know I can't, but I know you can. To look to God and say, I know you can, I know you can. And this is what David is doing in verses 1 and 2. David sees what's against him, and he sees that he can't handle this. But he doesn't linger there either, right? I mean, that's the other thing that we can do in our trials in life is we can look at the circumstances and get kind of down on ourselves and think, this, this trial is terrible and I can't do anything to get out of it and then we get stuck there. But that's not what David does either because of the beginning of verse 3, these two words, but you. See, what he's doing is he's now looking up. He is now moving beyond the circumstances, and he's moving to God. That in the midst of the lies that David's enemies are throwing at him, David combats those lies with remembering and proclaiming the truths about God. I mean, just look at all that he says about God in verse 3 alone. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David is reminding himself that God is his shield, that God is his protector, that God is his guard, and that God is David's glory. David is facing dishonor everywhere. Shimei, his son, the people of Israel, but God is his glory, and that's what he's looking to. And that God is the lifter of his head. The world is weighing him down. And yet he looks and says, but God, you're the one that you're going to lift my head up. You are going to lift my head when the world is pressing me down. And as a result of seeing God accurately in verse 3, David pours out his heart to God in prayer with great confidence that God is going to deliver him in verse 4. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And I love the flow that is taking place in this chapter, that this confidence that David has in verse 4 is because of the realization of who God is in verse 3 that combats the lies of verse 2. It's amazing that after the lies that are coming in verse 2, many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation from him, that David says, I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. The only way that he can have that confidence is because he reminds himself of who God is in verse 3. This is what we need to be doing when the spiritual battles arise in us and the physical trials that we fight. We preach truths about who God is to ourselves, and then we take those truths and we weave them into our prayers to God. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, The most important daily habit 
that we can possess is to remind ourselves of the gospel. That when the world is swirling around us because of the trials that we face, we need an anchor to steady our soul in the storm. And the truths of God's character as they are revealed to us in his word is the only anchor that is strong enough to steady our hearts and to trust in him. And then our prayer to God is the reinforcer of that anchor. For when we begin to pray to God, we take our eyes off the circumstances and the things that are swirling around us, and we look up, and we look up to the sovereign one who is reigning and ruling over those circumstances. So in our trials, preach gospel truths into the situation, and then pray. J.C. Riley said this about trials, and he said four things that trials are intended to do. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and to drive us to our knees. And that is what is happening to David in this moment right here in Psalm 3. And that's what's meant to happen to us as well. Next in verses 5 and 6, we see the result of David's praying and preaching gospel truths to themselves. And this is what trust in God looks like. Look at what it says. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So the first thing we see in verse 5 is the peace that has come to David. He's able to lay down and sleep. Now you know sleep can be hard to come by when our hearts are gripped by anxiety, worry, stress. But David says he's able to sleep. David's remembrance of God and who he is and praying to God gave him this ability to sleep. That David can rest in the one that works for him. Even when he's on the run, far from home, he's not in his castle sleeping in his nice bed. I imagine he's writing this because he's getting ready to sleep on the ground somewhere out in the wilderness, right? Psalm 121, 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I believe that the reason that David is able to sleep because he knows that God is not sleeping on him. That while David is sleeping, God is awake and God is working. And according to verse 5, the work that God is doing while David is sleeping is sustaining him. This word sustaining gives this idea of resting upon. The reason David can rest is because he is resting upon God. We can rest knowing that God is the one who will sustain us, that he's upholding us, that he is supporting us while we sleep. So David has this peace from God that enables him to sleep. And according to verse 6, David has a peace from God that also helped him fight his fears. David says, I will not be afraid. Why? Well, it's not because his enemies are gone, right? He doesn't say, hey, I will not be afraid because you drove all my enemies away. Look at what it says. He says, I will not be afraid because the enemy is right here. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. 
mean, David is saying he's not afraid when he's got an army of thousands that are against him and have surrounded him. Yet, despite this formidable foe, David is not afraid. And I believe this is another result of David preaching gospel truths to himself and reminding him of who God is because he sees that God as a shield and protector is bigger than any enemy that's going to come against him. That David is able to see the might and the power of God. He's reminded of just how big God is. And he is not afraid because he sees that David, David sees that God is bigger than the many thousands that have surrounded him. And that's good news for us, right? That means God is bigger than any trial and any enemy that we face as well. Because when this truth hits deep into our heart that God is always bigger and any trial that we are in, even though the trial has not gone away, our perspective on the trial will change. The perspective changes is because when God gets magnified and God gets bigger, problems get smaller. And this is what happened to David when he saw God and that God is bigger than the army of thousands that is coming against him. And this can happen for us in the trials that we face as well. Then in verse 7 comes David's petition. He asks for two things, right? Look with me in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. So what we see here, we see that David is calling for God to arise. He's asking him to stand up, take action, come and save. And he's calling God to strike down and break his enemies. And then in verse 8, David makes two declarations, right? Look at me, what it says here. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. First declaration, David affirms that salvation belongs to God. And I think David is very intentional in saying that at this particular point in time to combat verse 2. Remember what we saw in back verse 2? Many of his foes, his enemies, are saying of his soul, there is no salvation for him for God. And what David is declaring is salvation is not theirs to dictate because salvation does not belong to them. Salvation belongs to God and God alone, and God is the one who dictates who salvation is given to. And David is giving himself a good gospel reminder in this particular moment. And second declaration, God's blessing is to be on his people. So while on the run, being surrounded by thousands, David is declaring, as if it's already happened, salvation and blessing from God. Now the question becomes, how? How can David be so confident that God will save and bless him? How can David know that God will bring about such a victory for him? I mean, how can David know that his enemies are going to be defeated? How can David trust this outcome that God is going to do this with such certainty against an overwhelming foe? Well, I believe the answers to these questions is that David somehow knew that no matter the outcome of his current circumstances, God had already secured an eternal victory for David. And I think this is key. I think this is key for us to understand in our trials as well, that no matter the outcome of the current trial that we are facing, God has already secured our eternal victory as well. 
Because our trials can never ultimately win when eternity has already been secured for us. And I believe this great gospel connection between our story in 2 Samuel and Jesus and eternity can be seen here. I want you to see this connection. I've been waiting two and a half years to show this connection. So I hope I didn't oversell it in that moment. But there's this pastor, um, Matt Schmeethurst, uh, pointed this out. And I think this is so awesome. Turn back to me to um, 2 Samuel chapter 15. I didn't read this verse earlier because I was holding it back. So in verse 23 is what I want us to look at. Verse 23 is in the process of David and his family and all of them fleeing. I'm going to wait till I hear all the pages turning stop because I want you to see this. Okay? And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed, toward, passed on toward the wilderness. Okay, so hold that. Now turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 is the night of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. I want you to look at verse 1 with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. See that? King David crosses the valley of Kidron in order to escape his trial and death. Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley and walks right into the trial, and walks right towards his death, deliberately going to the cross. David flees his enemy in his trial, and Jesus embraces his enemy in his trial. And by embracing his trial, King Jesus goes to the cross, raises from the dead, and comes out victorious in his trial over all of his enemies which in turn brings about all of our victories against all of our enemies and in all of our trials as well. Yes, our trials, they may be hard, right? But we can have this confidence that our trial will not overcome us because Jesus overcame his greatest trial on the cross for our benefit. The trials that we face never ultimately and completely claim us because Jesus in his trial ultimately and completely claimed us. Jesus victoriously endured the greatest trial to strengthen us to endure our trials. And just as Jesus came out victoriously, so we will come out victoriously as well. So we can be even more confident than David because we have clearly seen the completed work of Christ in the cross and the resurrection. Jesus did, I mean, I'm sorry, God did arise. God did save. And he did it when he sent Jesus. 
God did strike all of our enemies in the cheek and broke the teeth of all of the wicked when Jesus went to the cross, defeated Satan, sin, and death. Salvation does indeed truly belong to God because of the work that Christ did on the cross and in the resurrection on our behalf. God's blessings on his people have truly come solely because of the work of Jesus. So in our trials, can I encourage you today? Remember God. Remember his character. Remember who he is. It's okay to be honest with God. It's okay to bring your complaint and cry before him. But when you remember these gospel truths, weave them into your prayers and trust him. And let's remember Jesus. Let us not forget Jesus. Our ultimate blessing, our ultimate salvation, our ultimate victory, it all came from Jesus. And let's be trusting in that. Every trial that we have gone through, every trial that we will go through is overcome by Christ. All praise to our high king. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know who in this room is walking through a trial at this moment. Maybe they've just come out of it. Maybe they're just heading into it. Maybe they're right in the middle of it. But God, I pray that Psalm 3 would be their great help and hope and encouragement this morning. To know that salvation is from God. And that salvation is certain, and nothing will take that away. And let Jesus be so real and sweet. And thank you for Christ. Jesus, thank you for not fleeing your enemies, but you went right through the Kidron Valley for us. Thank you, Jesus, for that incredible work. And thankful that knowing that because you went to the cross, you will go with us everywhere. And God, let that be an encouragement to us. Help us to remember Jesus and the goodness of who you are towards your people. And let these gospel truths ring really loud in our ears and in our hearts. I pray all this in your name. Amen. I'm going to read um, our benediction this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. If you could stand with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.